Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Epistemological Meltdown Edition. It's Wednesday, September 14th, 2016. On today's show, Atlanta is the new show. It's from creator and star Donald Glover. It's a half-hour comedy that takes place in the Atlanta hip-hop scene. And then, in case after case, hyped results have failed to stand up to scrutiny. The so-called replication crisis in science is getting worse by the minute. We discuss the fate of psychology and the social sciences in general with Slate's own Dan Engber. And then, it's been 20 years since a little movie called Walking and Talking came out. It was a tiny female friendship comedy that was both of its time and, in some respects, way ahead of its time. It's beloved by both Dana and me. We'll discuss Dana Stevens' lovely remembrance of the film. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. You're in studio today. (laughs) Am I? It's so nice to have you. He's got kind of a like, uh, he's sheared for winter. Yeah, I don't. You don't experience me as an embodied creature, and neither do I. So I, I it was. Thank you for reminding me. I'm actually here in person, uh, and of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Dana, hello. Hello, Stephen. Lovely to see you in the flesh. Lovely to see you too, um, Julia. I'm sure we have business before we start. What do we got? We do. Uh, first, we should note that uh, we're doing a live show in Los Angeles with Karina Longworth on Thursday, October 13th at the Aero Theater in Santa Monica. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live, and you should. We look forward to seeing you there. Thing two is that for our Slate Plus segment today, we are going to be joined by the wonderful Willa Paskin for a fall TV preview. We will pester her about which shows coming up seem good, whether this season's crop is uh, below or above average. Spoiler, she's excited. If you are a member of Slate Plus, you can listen to that segment right after our show. If you are not yet, why not become one? At slate.com slash culture plus, you get all kinds of bonus features on Slate. You get an ad-free version of the Slate podcast feed and uh, bonus segments like the one we're doing with Willa today. All right, Steve, let us commence. Thanks, Julia. Uh, Before we proceed any further, Dana, do you prefer to harmonize on the chorus of Allison or take a whole verse yourself (laughs) in LA. So we're still on. If we sell out this show, we're going to sing a song. Yeah, sure. Why not? All I ask is I just beg for one rehearsal. Please, (laughs) (laughs) please don't spring it on me. All right. One rehearsal it is. Uh, All right. Moving on. 
Atlanta is the new show from FX Network. It takes place in the Atlanta hip-hop scene and follows the story of Ernest Marks, a.k.a. Earn, a Princeton dropout who has returned to Atlanta to manage the career of his rapper cousin, Alfred Miles, a.k.a. Paperboy. The show stars Byron Tyree Henry as Paperboy, and the show's creator is Donald Glover. Julia, before we dig in, why don't you set this clip up for us? Yeah, well, so just a little brief plot outline of the show. Atlanta centers on the character of Ern Marks, played by Donald Glover, who created the show. Um, he's got a lot of different problems in his life, which I'm sure we'll get into in the course of the discussion. Uh, but the driving engine of the show is that he wants to make more of himself by managing uh, Paperboy, who's a rapper who's kind of in the mixtape economy in Atlanta and is his cousin and has some cred, but basically doesn't have a real music career happening. Uh, and so the clip is a conversation between the two of them in which Ern is pitching himself as the uh, potential manager for Paperboy. So, Zuta, you want in on Paperboy? What? No. Please, man. People ain't just nice, Ern. When was the last time you were nice to a girl you weren't trying to smash? This morning? You talking about your daughter, man. That's gross. No, it would be gross if I was trying to smash. I don't want a handout. I want to manage you. <laughs> manage? You know where the word manage come from? Manus, Latin for hand. Probably, but I'm going to say no for the purpose of my argument. Manage come from the word man, and uh, that ain't really your lane. My lane? Yeah, man, I need Malcolm. You too, Martin. You know what they did to him? They killed him. Didn't they kill Malcolm too? Well, no, no, they say that, but ain't nobody seen the body since the funeral. That's how funerals work. Alfred. Yeah, there's the good joke. <laughs> That's how funerals That's work. That's how funerals work. All right. Well, we're uh, lucky to be joined by um, Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Willa, welcome back to the show. Hey. Well, um, this, I note, gets 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Are you, oh, the look on your face. Well, I don't think I gave it 100% in my mm. own review, so I feel misrepresented by Rotten Tomatoes if I'm even on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, okay, well, the algorithm is broken down. Um, <laughs> let's uh, inject human uh, uh, discrimination into the discussion then. Uh, what do you make of the show? So this show has been extremely well-reviewed, and I've... Um, I've read a lot of the reviews and had this sort of uh, vertiginous experience of agreeing with a lot of them and also just feeling left a little cold by the show itself. I'm trying to sort of break down why that is. I think that there's a lot of things about the show that are extremely interesting and very well done. And Donald Glover made the show and he's responsible for all of those parts. But I think that Earn himself is a kind of... He doesn't really work for me as like the protagonist. I found I found Paperboy um, and the performance Paperboy to be much more interesting and immediately captivating. And I think that there's just like a lot of stuff going on around Earn um, that make him just a sort of interesting but difficult main character. Um, mm -hmm. Which is that I sort of you know if you if you think about uh, Atlanta as one of these shows that is about you know, sort of semi-autobiographical, but not even that. It's not really semi-autobiographical, but like a very um, place-drenched, specific perspective, um, not that funny comedy, sort of like, which is what prestige comedies are these days. Um, Earn is like kind of the apotheosis of a couple trends in like simultaneously being, a, I think, a difficult lead character not even because he's so unlikable which is sort of like the larry david or hannah horvath model but being like just so cold mm -hmm. like he's so still and um you don't really know you know you know very little about him he has this he sort of has this background that we're not 
Like, he went to Princeton, but we don't really know anything about it. He has wanted to be a rapper himself, but we don't know anything about it. It feels like the show um, is sort of like, we're so not like a regular comedy or a regular show. We're going to tell you nothing about this guy. And he's going to also just be really, really, really self-contained. Mm-hmm. Do, you, At, do you think they're going to get to it, though? Yes. Yeah, so do I. I just don't know how they couldn't get to it. It seems important, you know? I mean, because he's actually kind of, he's kind of a mysterious person where it's like, he seems really, really uh, to have a lot of faith in his ability to make it or like he's not willing to give up on this dream. And yet he also seems totally stuck mm-hmm. and like can't get any traction or any motion. He has this dead end job as a cell phone salesman um, where he makes no money. And it's just like, why don't why are you doing that? <laughs> um, but he still so, so he seems like totally paralyzed, um, but also like has a lot of faith in himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Willa, I was thinking watching this that what this show seems to be doing is taking that formula of the unlikable protagonist that's everywhere on television right now and and turning it into this muffled, you know, someone who's like an unknowable protagonist. And I, that, I'm just not sure that whatever kind of, you know, dense nut needs to be cracked in order to understand who Donald Glover's character is that I want to put in the time to crack it because it's as if he's muffling his own charisma, as I think you say in your review of the show. I mean, I know when we talked about Magic Mike XXL last year, I think it was the mm-hmm. movie came out and that Steve was so enamored of Donald Glover's character, this incredibly charismatic male stripper who plays a, a minor part in the movie and goes on a road trip with the with the Magic Mike guys. And that side of Donald Glover is completely shut down. Maybe, you know, when his own rap gifts start coming out later, we'll see some of that. But we don't see him ever not only perform sort of in a public way, but we don't even see him kind of perform for his friends. He's, he's, just, he's somebody who seems to be without kind of a personal enthusiasm or charisma. And clearly that may be part of why he's this depressed semi-loser who is halfway broken up with his wife and halfway doesn't have anywhere to live and is in this transitional moment in his life. But there's not a lot of investment in making us care enough about him to sort out why. I I, I gotta say, I, I must have watched a different show. Are there two shows called Atlanta on the fall schedule? I thought this was, my, my note, my intro note for the segment was Willa. Is this the greatest work of popular <laughs> art in the 21st century or any century? I thought it was brilliant. I, I thought it was the best half hour of, of new TV I've seen in five years, maybe 10 years. Tell I thought me it, why. I Tell thought it was why. brilliant through, through and through because I thought it combined – you'll note that the executive producer of the show is Paul Sims. So in addition to the, I think, wonderful authorship and absolutely manifest charisma of the star, there's something of the old sensibility of news radio – it's beneath the surface, but it's there. It's, there's a lot of really sharp line delivery in the show. So it combines both the the auteur, you know, sort of I'm a loser, um, you know, authenticity of a lot of this trend in TV that you pointed to between Louis and Lena Dunham with uh, some real old style, twenty you know, 27 page script, deliver the line. Uh, sitcom writing that Paul Sims was terrific at. Um, But on top of that, I see his charisma everywhere in this. I think what they're doing is they're setting up the world and and they're setting up his place in between all of the components of the world. And in order to the, the first thing to do is to get the fresco in place, which includes the uh, incredibly rich vein of him being a Princeton dropout, someone who decided uh, it was in his own best interest to forego an Ivy League education. But we don't know that that's what happened. Well, but his father in the in the pilot indicates that, that whatever he does, he does volitionally and he does with a plan. Um, also, the idea that there isn't 
depth there already from the beginning, I think is completely wrong. When he's on the bus and he has that incredible little soliloquy about, semi-soliloquy, where he says, uh, like, basically, did God put losers on earth in order to make the winners? Why can't I stop losing? Yeah, why can't I stop losing? I mean, this is a guy who thinks he's a loser and he says it with his daughter, toddler daughter in his lap, fast asleep with a beautiful detail. She's in order to keep her asleep. He's he's canceled out the ambient noise by putting a pair of headphones on her, but it's not just a pair of headphones. It's a little tiara headphones. And there are so many little loving details in this. I thought it was perfect. A, A perfect half hour of television. I'm Julia, you got to break the tie here. Did you did you watch the other three? I have to admit, I didn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm put on. I was put on Earth to make the winners feel like winners. <laughs> I'm doing a fucking excellent job of it. <laughs> I watched several episodes of the show. <laughs> QED. Um. Oh man, I am not a good tiebreaker here. I. I I had trouble figuring out whether this show was like a brilliant new beast, uh, like some kind of griffin, the likes of which I've never seen before, whose beauty I will only learn to recognize the more time I spend with it, or whether it was just a show that like wasn't quite in control of its pitches. Like the stew of different there's just so many tones at work here. Like there's a realism about a specific city that has echoes of the wire in some ways and kind of like the bureaucracy and the real politic and the honesty about money. Uh, but then there are like crazy hallucination sequences that feel um you know, almost have shades of like Donald Glover's 30 Rock Pass, like sort of farcical little sideways bits that are both deep and goofy. And then there's like a stoner comedy laced through it with the character of Darius, who's Paperboy's sidekick, who's very, very, very funny. Like everything Darius says is very funny. And sometimes when he's saying it, you're like, I thought I was watching a different show. Why are you, why do you keep poking (laughs) in from this other show with stoner jokes? Um, But that kind of keeps the, keeps you on your toes um so it's just this melange just like the the tone is so scrambled Mm -hmm. and i can't Mm -hmm. quite uh tell yet whether i think it all is gonna amount to something perfect or just a little off one of the things that i really like about the show is that it is and isn't set in this world of hip-hop like that's what it's really about is like it's set in this in this music world but actually um it treats that as realistically as it would be for most people, which is like you want to be a musician, like your life is still extremely hard and you can't make any money. So it's like there's nothing glamorous about that. Right. Like the actual plot of I think the first four episodes all revolve around Earn having no money. You know, like he can't get out of jail in the second episode because he can't afford to make bail. He spends the fourth episode involved in this sort of wild goose chase because he tried to pawn his phone and is like trying to get more money from that. The third episode is him taking Van on a date that he cannot afford. Like he accidentally ends up in an expensive restaurant. So and and it's not even, you know, sometimes they're at shows, but it's like you don't see them perform. They're in this in this hip hop world, but nothing about it is flashy or, mm-hmm. you know, it's just that they love the music and they also like it's their dream, but that has given them absolutely nothing. I think that's um sort of like interesting and realistic and so not what you expect from a TV show um, that's, oh, you know, TV shows in general because they always sort of want to be aspirational. Mm -hmm. It's like the opposite of Empire, for example. Um, But, you know, it's like, 
I have to confess that I have been with this show, like really trying to think about my reaction to it. And and it's about Donald Glover and like what my relationship to Donald Glover with is and how race impacts that. Because I, I read there was a really good piece on The Ringer um, about this show um, that sort of talked about how like Donald Glover has sort of become synonymous with like blurred culture, which is black nerd culture and um, sort of like has this you know, whether he wants to or not, like has been sort of come to seem sort of like pretentious and like, you know, he was people wanted him to be Spider-Man and that like um, and and in this story, it referred to um, Donald Glover's manager who went on tour with him um, when he was as Childish Gambino, the rapper, and and re- tells this story about them being at Drake's house, like Donald Glover, his brother, the manager, the weekend came up to them and basically afterwards was like, I was so was happy to be like, oh, you're really black. I really like I was kind of not sure you're really black. And and the manager's like, this is so crazy. This like beige guy from Canada is like questioning whether these two guys from Atlanta and one from South Central are like black enough. And that is like some of the stuff that just surrounds mm-hmm. Donald Glover. And I think that the show, you know, it's like he wants it to be real and he wants it to be really about the experience of black people and, and and about black culture. I mean, he gave an interview um, to New York Magazine um, talking about like how he wants to sort of show white people about like about black culture and, and all of that stuff is is in the show. And I think um, it can make the show like a little overdetermined and a little um, it, I mean, it's doing so much work. That is so much work for a TV mm-hmm. show to be doing beyond just trying to be funny and about and about a world. And I think sometimes it can just tip a little in Emily Nostrand's really rave of the show she said like it it edges towards pretentiousness and then doesn't ever quite go over but for me it did actually mm-hmm. tip over sometimes into sort of a pretentiousness i, I want to add one thing to that which is that the that the cur- courageous decision to make him a princeton awol i think is really interesting because actually the 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 wrote decision would be to make him really street and like we're going to show white people what it's really like and instead he put him between worlds which i think takes a lot more talent and a, a gift of a gift with nuance to, to pull off in a way there's also a really interesting moment in the second episode that involves only paperboy i think it's the part where um D- donald glover's character is still sitting in prison waiting to for his g- girlfriend to make bail but he's the guy's walking in the projects and these kids, these little children are playing a shooting game with a toy water gun. And are they saying the lyrics to his his rap? I think basically they're pretending to be Paperboy and getting involved in a shooting. And there's this moment that he comes over to these kids and says, that's not cool. You shouldn't be doing that. Their mother also comes out and is yelling at them. But then when the mother realizes that the person who she's talking to is Paperboy, she kind of gets all starstruck and wants to take selfies with him and it's just it's a moment of a kind of critique of hip-hop culture that i thought embedding that within this show was a really good way of doing you know kind of de-glamorizing it in the way you were talking about i think paperboy is such a great character because it's like on the one hand he want he's he's a rapper he want he made a mixtape he wants to have success but he is so refreshingly weirded out by all the intimations of like what that success could mean. Like he's weirded out by that situation with this woman who this mom who immediately um, just like wants to take a picture with him and put him on social media and starts flirting with him. He's weirded out by um, in the fourth episode, he sort of gets um, almost harassed or like fixated on by like a guy, Zan, who is like a who relentlessly Instagrams and Snapchats and has like 
a so huge social media gossip presence. And he's totally like freaked out about this guy, like kind of harassing him and he can't figure it out. And um, there's a moment where like a, a guy in a Batman mask comes to the door of his house and is just like, then leaves, you know, doesn't. Do, and they're like, you're too hot. You know, like where he's just really the reality of fame or even like that just the the beginning tastes of it are actually sort of like weird and sour and creepy. And that and that's another thing about the show that's really interesting and cool, which is that it's not just about how wanting to be a musician um, often means you're really poor. It's like even achieving your goal often means your life turns super strange. Mm. Well, we have Willow, right? We have Empire as a baseline for how big a show about the hip-hop world can break uh i guess audiences will determine the fate of atlanta do you think it's poised to become a, no there's yeah. no way but i don't even think that that don't think so but that's not what it's trying to do i mean that's like i'm trying to think of what in like that's like holding it to some totally no, i'm not saying that it's gonna I'm just saying that if it doesn't grab a big audience, people can't say that it's because about it's about a subject matter that like white television viewing America won't respond to. Right. That's true. But I do think there's something about a show like this that it's like you want not everybody to like it. Mm -hmm. Like it's weird and particular and someone's sensibility. And if really everyone who sees it says it's like amazing, that's that would be surprising. You know, like that is not the case about any show like this right that's like so singular and like so complex and has so many different notes in it and so many different kinds of characters and so many thoughts in its head like you you wouldn't necessarily um you know like the fact that it's 100 percent on rotten tomatoes is like really is actually like odd to me mm. um but i do think like as we've seen in this conversation like there's a ton there it's just mm. and it, and i think it is a really thoughtful show it's just like i didn't know that I like if if I was left to my own devices, would I like really want to watch it again? I don't think that I would, you know. Oh man! Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> whatever the over under is on this being a hit, I'm taking the over. I really want to revisit this one, but uh, it was as always fantastic having you on to talk about TV, Willa. Thank you so much. Thanks. Scientific careers are built on high-profile publications, and scientists are all too susceptible to picking out data to support a publishable conclusion, so wrote Dan Engber in an article for Slate magazine. Uh, Dan Engber is Slate columnist, science writer uh, extraordinaire. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Dan, as a preface to this discussion, talk a little bit about what replicability, what reproducibility is to science, and why this recent discovery that so many papers in the psychology world and social science world in general aren't uh, withstanding careful scrutiny in follow-up studies. Well, I mean, it's kind of the premise of uh, science as as a practice and an industry and and a profession is that if you um, if your work is good enough to make it through peer review and become part of the um, canonized in the scientific literature, then it is truthful. The effect you found is real, and people can build on that in planning future experiments. And so the um, the idea is that everything is reproducible to some extent, that you could run something like the same experiment and get something like the same result. Now, in practice, it's what does reproducibility actually mean? You can never exactly replicate the conditions of any experiment ever. So um, 
you can really get lost in kind of you know philosophical right, well, and technical discussions. Let's get lost later, <laughs> and I'm ready to get lost right away. <laughs> I, I, well, we'll get we'll get to lost quickly enough, I'm sure. But okay. first, give us some sense of the scope of the problem and how it's been unearthed. There was actually a project to try to reproduce results from, uh, especially from I would think hyped or p well publicly well known studies, and it's revealed what percentage of failures. So, um, yeah, this, everyone wants to know the scope of the problem. So there, Brian Nozick, um, a psychologist, uh, started something called the Reproducibility Project for Psychology. Um, he and many collaborators tried to recreate a 100 different studies chosen from a bunch of psychology journals. And um, there are lots of different ways to interpret their results, but uh, generally they found that you know, 30, 40% uh, were reproduced. But it's it's kind of a subjective thing. Again, I I don't want to get lost in, mm -hmm. in the weeds, but it, you know, from the get-go, um, there are people who say, oh, no, no, look at the, you really, you're misinterpreting it really far more than 40% um, replicated. Or the fact that you failed to reproduce this experiment, maybe it's your fault, not the original experimenter. Mm -hmm. So um, it's hard to say, but Forty percent. I think I've I've thrown that number around in my stories. Mm -hmm. And where roughly where do you think the problem lies? It's not a simple case of falsification or out and out corruption. Uh, it's not the case. I would think by and large that people are having studies funded by a corporate interest and they're trying to flatter or satisfy them. It has much more to do with the structure surrounding social science, mm -hmm. which has a, a high pressure to publish results for those results to be meaningful, not only to the scientific community, to the niche community of a certain, you know, uh, subset of researchers, but essentially it's kind of a press release mentality governs a lot of uh, uh, the publication of scientific results. So the results tend to be hyped and that has worked its way back into the research itself. Right. I mean, I think even just the the standards the the standard practices in the field turned out to be really prone to producing false positives so about 5 years ago a researcher named Daryl Bem put out a paper using what you know were totally reasonable approaches to running experiments and doing statistical analyses and he proved the existence of ESP and that made everyone really uncomfortable uh, there was a paper that came out shortly after that called False Positive Psychology, which showed very clearly that um, certain very standard methods could just turn up totally ridiculous things. And that's when people really said, okay, we have this ESP finding that passed peer review um, that is seemingly legitimate if you believe in what the field has been doing for years and years. And now you have this other paper that's showing very explicitly how this can all go wrong. Can you talk about the, the, the case study that kicks off your whole your whole piece about the uh, smiling versus frowning experiment, which I, I love because it debunked, you know, one of my least favorite uh, inspirational bromides, which is sort of <laughs> fake it till you make it, right? Smile until you feel good. Uh, well, I don't know if it quite debunked it, but the the uh, this is a this very old idea that um, your emotional states sort of follow from your from your facial expressions or your bodily sensations, <clears throat> rather than going the other way around, as 
one might think. Um, and in the 80s, a researcher named Fritz Strack did a, a famous study that's an intro to psychology textbooks where he had uh, people hold a pen in their mouths, either between their lips or between their teeth. And if you imagine doing that or put a pen in your mouth, you'll see that if you hold it between your teeth, you kind of force yourself into a smile. And if you hold between your lips, you kind of you're making a sad face. And then he had the people look at cartoons, Gary Larson Farside cartoons, and he found that when people had their faces forced into a smile, they thought the cartoons were funnier. So that was a big finding. As I say, it's in it's in textbooks even to this day. Um, lots of research followed on that, putting pens in people's mouths. And, and the idea of putting the pen in your mouth is that is that you don't know that you're being asked to smile or frown is the idea. Right. Because you could imagine that, yeah, if you smile, it makes you happier. But maybe that's, you know, whatever the motivation that led you to smile is also made you happier or you knew you were supposed to feel happy or maybe even to make yourself smile at a you know the instructions of an experimenter you thought of something that made you happy so it's the idea here was what if we could really isolate the facial expression from any inner state just you don't even know you're smiling the people in these experiments don't realize that their mouth is in a smile so um so that was the importance of the finding in 1988. And a recent huge attempt to replicate this study came up with nothing. I don't know whether to smile or I mean, so you, you've written this wonderful piece for us about the smiling study. And in March, you wrote a piece about another trademark study that's been cited many places that uh, ran into replication problems, which is the um, the theory of ego depletion or the marshmallow test or the idea that uh, you can that, that the willpower it takes to make decisions that demonstrate good judgment but require some restraint of impulse is uh, is finite and that we must shepherd it safely and guard it closely and uh, once it's drained be aware of our of, of the need to replenish it. You have it. to rest to replenish your willpower yes. before you use it again. Yes. That was also something that was thought to be well established, cited very frequently, cited even over into the kind of journalistic sphere that covers this kind of work uh, that they had a lot of difficulty replicating. And reading these pieces of yours, my question as a non-scientific layperson is like, what the fuck is psychology <laughs> just made up? Like, is it, is there, is every, is, is, has, is science just like an elaborate set of manners uh, that people perform for one another to convince each other that various things are true? Yes. But is like, no, not, is it possible to actually glean knowledge based on the scientific method? That's my that's my light question for I, you. I would say yes and yes. Yeah, I mean each each um, s science is each field and subfield within science has its own sort of community standards for even something as simple as you know how many subjects do you need to run to uh, to have proved your point. Um, there was a Ed Young just wrote a, a piece about replication issues in the Atlantic, and he's talking about some psychology studies, and he quotes someone saying, this would never fly in political science. It's one of these, I think, studies of how to change people's minds. You know, that would just be laughed out of the room if someone tried to publish that study. Well, that's just because there are different standards. If you're doing, you know, brain scanning research, you need 
10 people. If you're doing a social psychology study, typically you would have like 50 people, or historically you would have that. And if you're doing um, some other kind of study, you would have 200. So yeah, there are there are customs and manners, and and one would hope that those are related to... But I, I'm, Dan, I have to interrupt. I'm very surprised to hear you describe the number of subjects for a study, to hear you say that that's based in a in custom, and not some sense of how you actually get true results from um, using the experimental method, right? I mean, it's like it's it, it, the 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 disciplining factor there should be truth, right? Not the customs of a subfield in science, right? Yeah. Th- so part of it, there are kind of arcane statistical questions: how many subjects do you need to test, given you know how noisy your, the signal is that you're looking for to get a convincing answer. And there seem to be real problems in psychology from the last 20 years, let's say, in how researchers were assessing or whether they were even thinking about that question. Is my study powerful enough to mm-hmm. find something real? Yeah. So I think that's an example of a custom, and it's a bad custom that needs to be abolished, mm-hmm. um, that we can use this number of subjects and do this kind of statistical test. But there are practical issues, too, for the brain scanning stuff. You do 10 people because you're using a right. hugely expensive piece of equipment in a hospital. You know, So there's there are practical constraints and, and, and kind of theoretical issues here, and people get it wrong sometimes. Can I ask, okay, so so the pieces you've written for us thus far focus around psychology, which seems particularly complicated because, because of this human factor. The replication crisis is contained to psychology or, or is, are the, is the sort of manners and mores question like our phys- physicists and chemists and, and, and economists? Well, right. But economists you put in the mushy pile already. Like right. I sort of assume the, uh, the, the economists the, don't put themselves in the mushy pile. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the whole like uh, pathos of being an economist. But, <laughs> but, but, but let's get to the mid, to the furry, the, the boundary questions in a sec. But just like, okay, you focus on psychology. Does it zoom all the way out to the hard, hard sciences, or is it focused on these mushy ones? It it zooms out at least to biomedical research. Um, it's unclear how how far it zooms out, but um, there's a lot of evidence that you know there's a, that there are false results littering the medical uh, literature. Um, I think psychologists are really well-prepared to self-examine because they are psychologists. I mean, one of the funny things about this is that a lot of these psychology effects that are now in question are these things about the incredible power of the unconscious mind. So we had, you know, a run, a resurgence of belief in, in the influence of the unconscious in the last 20 years. And Many of these things, like this willpower thing you talked about, or these social priming effects, the idea that if someone says some words to you that make you think of old people, well, you'll feel like an old person and you'll act like an old person. These kind of like very, I mean, they are unbelievable. And so now there's a bit of a backlash and saying, well, they're unbelievable because they aren't true. But then when you think about what would lead those all those false positives to make the, to make their way into the literature, all of the explanations are psychological ones about hidden bias on the parts of experimenters. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost equally hard to believe that this entire field of extremely smart, well-trained people have just through their own unconscious biases created this mountain of bogus evidence in support of other unconscious effects. So anyway, I, that's 
I bring that up, up all to say that I think psychologists understand how biases operate. They believe in them fundamentally. Um, and maybe in some way they're not as arrogant as people in, say, biomedical research who I think would have a harder time admitting that they have a problem in the first place. So th I think that's why we're starting here with psychology and it, the problem is certainly bigger than just psychology. So I'm like not letting a word in edgewise here, but I find this incredibly destabilizing, even though I'm not a research <laughs> scientist for this reason. So many important things are at stake in our politics and culture that are predicated on people understanding knowledge delivered to us by science. And one thing that has always itched at me about the way that we talk about science culturally is that fundamentally believing in science, if you are not a scientist, is an act of faith. Like, I believe in climate change and that it is man-made and that it is accelerating and uh, that that will have many impacts on our world and culture, and that if our governments don't like those impacts, they should do something about them. Uh, I believe that vaccines work and are a good thing to do and vigorously defend those principles, essentially based on the fact that, like, I trust you as like our our science writer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, um, or you as a stand in for science journalists as interpreters of what science, the knowledge generating apparatus has concluded, right? You, you filter out the signal and noise. You tell me, me as a stand in for humans, what to think. Uh, I trust science. I trust you. I say, go forth and you know, sign that climate treaty. But if science actually isn't capable of producing knowledge and is just a bunch of people like making funny little ornate bows to each other and then confirming those bows back at each other and, you know, it's like a fucking Gilbert and Sullivan play, <laughs> like, what the fuck? What do we do? <laughs> How do we know anything? <laughs> like, I, am I over overreacting? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the fact that... Uh, it's good, right? So if if it turns out that ego depletion is not a real thing, um, and there's been a lot of time wasted pursuing that particular line of research, it's good that we now know that we shouldn't do that anymore, and now we can do better research on more important things. So, um, but can we? Do we know how to do research? Yeah, I mean, some of these. So specifically in, say, social psychology, some of these practices that were in widespread use taught to graduate students in 2010 are just are going to disappear. Like so, what? Like what kind of practice? Just in, in not ignoring the, um, you know, whether the question of whether you, you have enough subjects in your study to get a believable answer. Just there's there's a more sophisticated approach to this the statistics that's being taught now. Um, I think that's, that is unambiguously a positive change that will lead to better, truer results um, starting now and going into the future. I mean, it's still troubling, though, because you have this past that you have to deal with um, where, you know, it's, it's going to be such a huge effort to comb through all of that past work and figure out what's true and what isn't. I don't think there are automated ways to do it. So you just have to go through, you know, 
bit by bit and try to reproduce. So, so there, yeah, there's cause for distress, but I, but it's not like we can't believe anything anymore. And the new version of psychology is going to be just as um, you know empty-headed and based on only on custom and and, and convention as the old. I think that that caricatures both the old and and underestimates the new. So Julia's complete epistemological meltdown is not warranted. <laughs> we can actually pick up a copy of Popular Science or National Geographic and assume that it isn't just a tissue of lies. <laughs> um, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> God damn it, Dan. This is the kind of equivocation that's going to leave me twisting in the wind. <laughs> maybe you can use your ESP to All figure right, maybe, it out. Maybe I have a way out of the equivocation quickly at the end of the segment. But um, it seems to me the great adventure in modern science was the mapping of the you know the hype at one point entirely hypothetical interior of the atom over a period of about 30 40 years the golden age of physics culminating in uh, the explosion of the atomic bomb now that is the most stark uh, example of a uh, highly theoretical, mathematical, um, uh, entirely modeled, very often apart from a, a, a clear-cut experimental set of situations, a super theoretical uh, act of uh, human uh, human mentality that culminated in a totally demonstrable um, confirmation that, of course, you know, affected world history and everybody's life, on and on and on. Um, a shorter way of putting it would be, if we're willing to accept as as our baseline for truth a kind of pragmatic insight into what makes something true, which is that it has utility and a demonstrable utility, as opposed to assuming that there's a completely pure, neutral, non-human standard for establishing something as true – counterintuitively, we may be able to hold science and social science to more rigorous standards because utility lies outside of the purely customary kabuki that happens between scientists and subfields. If you actually ask, well, we know science X gives us a cell phone. It gives us this perspicuous human utility. Therefore, it has truth value because it has utility value. I don't think that sends us down an epistemological labyrinth. It doesn't send us in the direction of Jacques Derrida. It sends us in the direction of Niels Bohr and and, and Einstein, um, uh, I think. And they were very sophisticated about the relationship between mathematical models, the actual you know, supposedly empirical interior of the atom and human utility and epistemology. They 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 weren't complete majors uh, about it, but they were also <laughs> supremely sophisticated about it. Isn't that one way to bring us out of the out of the um, epistemological tantrum that Julia's having? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it, it, science works, right? I mean, we can exactly. blow people up. That, we that can hear. <laughs> that was the two word <laughs> right. version of what I. Just yeah, said. yeah, and we can. I think the that's that's. I think it's really important. The danger to me is wasted time and sometimes wasted money on on bad policies. Um, that that's the problem. Like in the end, you know it works or it doesn't. I mean, psychology may be a little more vulnerable because some of these insights are the sorts of things where you go, "Huh, that's how my brain works." But it actually has. There is no associated technology, no associated policy. But some of these psychology things do have policies associated with them about you know implementing some little fifteen minute thing in schools to make kids feel better about themselves and do better on standardized tests. We're, we might be wasting time. Scientists certainly have wasted time on a lot of things in the past, and we'll get better things that work if we can 
cut some of this waste out of the process. Hmm. Well, that's heartening, but it also points back to the problem with psychology, which is like, you know, that's where you get the human mind problem in it. Like, what works? What like what makes your ego feel less depleted? I don't know. Like, it's hard to know how we will ever really know. Oh, wow. We had to go out on the spooky uh, <laughs> lit note. Uh, Dan. Sorry. Never mind. Science works. Rewind. <laughs> Stick a pen in your teeth and smile. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to say there's nobody better to read on the subject of replicability than Daniel Engberg, columnist for Slate. Uh, Dan, your piece is, I should say, Sad Face, another classic finding in psychology, just blew up. Is it time to panic yet? Dan, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this oh, with us. Thanks for having me. In 1996, we barely had email, likely didn't have a cell phone, and Manhattan was still Brooklyn, that is home to wandering creatives stuck in the eternal gully between college and real life. In 1996, we also didn't go see In Droves, a little movie called Walking and Talking. It was directed and written by a newcomer named Nicole Holofcener. Uh, it was a very small comedy of manners about female friendship. It starred Catherine Keener and Anne Hesch and Liv Schreiber, all unknowns at the time. It found an afterlife with many viewers, including me and Dana Stevens, who wrote a lovely remembrance of the film. Dana, it makes total sense that you would love this movie. I love this movie. Describe why you love this movie. I loved your piece about you loving the movie, by the way. It was beautifully written. Oh, and then we found out that Julia had never seen the movie, which became, then this segment became a, a total must. So this this piece on Walking and Talking came about not just because the movie is having its 20th anniversary this year, but because Slate is having its 20th anniversary. And there's a big sort of rollout of anniversary-related pieces and packages on Slate. And Dan Coyce, the culture editor, asked me and a bunch of other culture writers to take something, not necessarily from 1996, it turned out to be in my case, but to take some cultural object, event, story, book, movie, that had happened in the years since Slate began and now and sort of talk about why that was an important moment and what effect it had on the culture afterward. And so racking my brains to think about this and to think back to what 1996 was in my life and in the culture's life, um, I just I, I was looking through movies released in 1996 and among Independence Day and a bunch of other big blockbusters, I saw Walking and Talking and just remembered how dear that movie was to me and sort of became to me slowly over the over the years afterward. And then going back and rewatching it completely unexpectedly, I suddenly found myself thinking about technology and how technology has changed romantic relationships and just human relationships in in the years since then. Although the movie is in no way about technology, no. it of course takes place in a world where the technology is what it is. And so, you know, as you'll see if you watch the movie, and I hope some of our viewers either have seen it or will will watch it after this segment, um, technology figures very largely in the plot. There's a there's a big plot twist that depends on someone's answering machine being heard by the wrong person. In other words, it's just a you know a recorder with buttons that's sitting there and and, and anybody can hear it. It's not a private voicemail message. Um, what else? Catherine Keener, the main character, works in a classified ad section mm -hmm. of a newspaper. That's kind of her shitty after-college job. Which and then her recreation is going to the video store and renting videos. Yeah, there's a video store. There's a rotary phone. Uh, many of our listeners will not have seen the movie. Can you just give them some sense of what it's about uh, and what it's like? in tone and style. Yes, um, that's, that's that's a good pointer. I said nothing about the movie beforehand. Well, so Walking and Talking is this, um, as you say, very low-key romantic comedy that is is much more about the friendship of the Anne Hage character and the Catherine Keener character than either of their romantic relationships. But there's also a lot of courtship going on in the background. So Anne Hage is about to get married to a character played by Todd Field, um, who I think anybody who watched movies in the 90s will recognize Todd Field when you see him. He's very much one of the sort of that guy character actors. He's her fiance 
and uh, and they kind of have ongoing squabbles and and problems about their upcoming wedding. Then Catherine Keener is sort of this lone wolf who feels abandoned by her best friend being about to get married and now lives alone in the apartment that they used to share. And uh, and she has a couple of failed romantic relationships. She hangs around a lot with the Liev Schreiber character, who's her ex, but um, who's one of those exes who's just always around and kind of hanging hanging around borrowing money and asking for advice. And uh, and then she also has and this is maybe my favorite part of the movie this this failed flirtation with the, the video store clerk who's been uh, eyeing her every time she comes in to rent her her stack of movies who's played by the great Kevin Corrigan and they have a really nice sort of um, bad <laughs> bad date together um, I don't know I don't I don't, I, I don't know if we're spoiling I don't know if I want to get into any more than that but I think the key thing about walking and talking is that not very much happens in it you know and and the title sort of says that right out. And that was something else that struck me upon watching it again, is that that was so fresh and unusual and weird at the time. It was almost it was almost like a, such a movie couldn't be made. I remember mm-hmm. thinking, how how can it be that there's this movie about just sort of two women having a bad moment in their friendship and that's it? No one dies. Well, actually, one character dies who's not human. <laughs> I won't get into that. <laughs> Um, but yes, there's a lot of extraterrestrials, <laughs> lasers. Yeah, just like nobody's on the run from the cops. You know, the stakes aren't that high in a way, but they're high in the way that the stakes in all of our daily lives are yeah. high. It's it's momentous. I mean, the, the two most surprising things about the movie, one I didn't know until I read your um, piece, was that it it for how superficially it might seem like a movie with a lot of ad lib scenes or feels slightly underwritten. In fact, it wasn't underwritten. It was, it was a script that she had worked on for years to make precisely as she wanted it to be. It's, it's not an ad lib film at all. And the second thing is just how momentous the movie I think really is. You have to watch it in its totality to get that, but uh, without spoiling anything, it really comes through in the very first scene in the very last scene that some large thing has happened, especially in the Catherine, Catherine Keener's life, but in both of their lives. And it's just, it's a beautiful film. I couldn't love it more, but I completely agree about the sense of moment. I watched this movie last night and like wept at the end <laughs> like i there's a scene at the end between the uh between the two friends when they're swimming in a lake and i just like the spigots opened like i just felt so moved by the honesty and and like truth of the moment and and you know the the conceit of the 20th anniversary package is take something from the last 20 years that that was part of some change and might point the way towards change in the in the future and i think the the turning points you can see in this film watching it through that lens are a couple one of them is the rise of the the sort of empowered female creators who get to tell stories about their lives and define what stakes are in a way that doesn't necessarily involve like lassos and the range or guns and the war or uh you know whatever else movies are about explosions um and the other is that, like, why is the Bechdel test not called the Holofcener test? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I'll do credit to uh, Alison Bechdel for pointing it out and coming up with it. But, you know, people gave bridema- Bridesmaids so much revolutionary credit for being a movie about what happens between two friends when one of them decides to get married and the other one feels a little bit abandoned. And I don't remember when that movie came out, people being like, uh, this is the plot of Walking and Talking. Actually, Nicole, Nicole Holofcener pointed that out to me in an interview I did with her, which is going to appear with this with this piece on Slate. But yeah, that Bridesmaids is essentially a bigger scale, more comedic remake of, of Walking totally. and Talking. Totally. With Leslie of Schreiber, sadly. Um, but just this... The the, the the moment of that kind of attention being given to 
the female experience um, and the like way in which Catherine Keener is both a like sad sack spinster with a cat and a fucking badass at the same time is so radical feeling like she's she's such a mix. She's such a complicated mix of people. She's the sort of person who will recognize that her ex is not just borrowing money for her for the third time, but borrowing it to further a dalliance with some other woman and like have to decide within her whether she has the metal to call bullshit on that and and finds herself to be quite a steely person. Um, and also the sort of person where who, really the plot is like how sad and unmoored can a single woman with a cat be. Uh, and that like the the kind of humanity and complexity and non-punchlinitude and multivalence of Catherine Keener's character are just extraordinary. I mean, Anne Hesh's character is great and complicated too, but to me, Keener's performance is the the centerpiece and yeah Keener is a revelation to this movie I mean, yeah. she had done small things before but this was the first time I remember seeing her certainly the first time of her playing a lead and just something about her sensibility and Nicole Hall of Center's mesh so perfectly she's been in every one of her movies usually playing the lead and uh, and it really is that ability she has to kind of turn on a dime between someone who's vulnerable and needy in this movie and to suddenly somebody who's just a wisecracking broad who's hilarious and as long as we're talking about that, that Quicksilver quality of her character, I think we have a clip that illustrates that really well, where she is sitting, Catherine Keener's character, Amelia, is sitting and talking to her ex, played by Liev Schreiber. And um, and it comes up, the, the subject comes up, why did we break up in the first place? What went wrong? Okay, I know you and I never really talked about it. I mean, not really, but what went wrong with us? I mean, did I do something horrendous to, like, turn you off? Come on, I can take it. What was it? You, you made me too important. But you were important to me. And... But too important, you know? Like, like I was everything. You weren't everything, Andrew. I know. But you had this way of making me feel like that. That's great. You know what? I'm gonna leave because I don't even I don't even know. I don't even know how to do this, so I'm gonna go. Okay, bye. Amelia, wait. No, no, it's not like that. Just would you wait? Now you can call back Virginia. Fucking and then the Liz Fair cue. My mm, God. Well, that's something we haven't even gotten to, but the yeah, soundtrack to this movie is incredible. Billy Bragg did the soundtrack. He both wrote some of the incidental music and some of his pop songs are used. So the opening and the closing are both just these utter pop gems by Billy Bragg. Totally agree. Also, the in the background of the scene was Yola Tango before they hit the Liz Fair cue. <laughs> yeah. Also, Liv Schreiber is so great in this movie. And there's, yeah, I mean, Liv Schreiber has played like a jillion roles in his life, but somehow his Marty Baron in Spotlight is so indelible for me that somehow I was imagining this whole movie as like Marty <laughs> Baron's childhood. Like, I got very confused watching it. <laughs> it's hard to imagine Marty Baron had it as aimless a mid-20s period <laughs> as very, that character. I very much doubt that Marty Baron 
<laughs> borrowed as much money or watched as much video porn. Right. Or borrowed money from his ex in order to have phone sex with his new girl. I mean, there's just there's Andrew really pushes it. But he's one of those kind of lovable loser characters. I don't know. I mean, I, I have no perspective on this movie because I really do feel like it's probably in my top 10 favorite movies in the world. And that says nothing necessarily about its objective quality. But it just it has such a voice and it has such a sweet spirit. It's such an exciting debut, too. And I, and I feel like it's it, from an artist who really delivered on that promise. You know, she's made very few movies, but she's always just done her own They're thing. They're always good. What was her second movie again? I don't know what order they came in. But I, the, I the one after this about, was Lovely and Amazing. Yeah, Lovely and Amazing. That's, I actually really love Lovely and Amazing. When I saw it, I thought I liked it more than Walking and Talking, but... Yeah, everybody may have their favorite. And maybe not everybody thinks that Hall of Center is the great writer-director that I do. But I'm always sort of amazed when she's not adduced on, you know, the list of of America's best working directors. Okay, since this is just like a a sweet bouquet of violets to Nicole Hall of Center, can I raise a devil's advocate counter-argument just for the sake of spirited debate? Of course. Um, Is this movie really so important? There were like all kinds of cute small indies in the 90s. There was this whole wave, independent cinema, you know, just a bunch of small, smart New Yorkers, uh, you know, the, the canvas of their lives, you know, Portrayed. It's my devil's advocacy is shaking under my <laughs> can you, can you, well, can you throw out another title that you think? Had, um, yeah. uh, what's the what's the one with the Noah Baumbach movies? Well, K- kicking, kicking, kicking and, and screaming, screaming walking be, and talking, and kicking and screaming would be the companion one. But what was the night? I mean, yeah, no, definitely uh, there were hundreds of them. House of Yes. I mean, thirty of them starred Parker Posey. Uh, well, like my whole like ch- you know teenage self identity was that I like went to see them at the indie movie in Boston, or you know, like whatever. Like I, I went to a litany of such things, although not this one. But like, why w- make the case for the specific import of this as par- as out of that? trend of smaller movies that were had more hyper realism about people's lives and you know some others of them had women in interesting roles i don't know i don't have a huge case to make actually julie and i'm not saying for example that the indie aesthetic or the idea of making a film about female friendship was invented by nicole hall of center but there's a there's a confidence to this debut there's a feeling about this debut that it's small and modest and quiet and yet completely confident and uh And, and and potent like it's modest and like a fucking knockout punch at the same time. I mean, to me, that's the yes. That's the experience of it. Is is you get sucker punched by it because it feels so small, and then you're floored. To- totally right. It's it's has the courage of being holistic about its power. So no individual scene is meant to show off her talents as a writer, you know, or her wit, or you know, her edginess, or whatever stupid euphemism was prevalent back when this movie uh, showed up. And that that takes huge confidence that people watch it all the way through and then feel the sucker force of the sucker punch. But I mean, Kicking and Screaming is about the Eric Stoltz character's crisis, right? And everybody else is kind of a, a prop. As I remember the movie, everybody else figures into his crisis in some symbolic way. I just, I don't feel that this movie has, um, that it instrumentalizes its characters in the way that many of those indie comedies we're talking about do. Beautifully put. The essay is wonderful, Dana. It's really Thank quite you. good, uh, as is the movie. I hope people watch it and read Dana's piece. And um, watch my interview with Nicole, which was really it was really fun to get to talk to Oh, it's to a video feature. Well, there's just going to be a little embedded interview with her. So. Oh, cool. Excellent. Yeah, I think she All was right. surprised and delighted that 20 years later, somebody wanted to talk about her movie. So. Superb. All right. Well, I'm, I'm told the producer tells me in my ear that the piece actually is called The Vagina Music of Walking and Talking. It's Dana Stevens work in blue again. <laughs> hey, that's a citation from the script. <laughs> it's Nicole, not me. Yeah, it says you. Uh, anyway, it's a great piece. Check it out and let us, uh, go, please watch the movie. Please read the piece and tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on.
Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Yes, I'm going to endorse a show that was recently put in its entirety on Netflix that's related to a years ago endorsement I did. Do you guys remember when I talked about Bob Ross and the joy of painting <laughs> and watching Bob Ross clips on YouTube? I remember Bob Ross. I'm not sure I remember you talking about did Bob the, Ross. Did the both of you grow up with Bob Ross? Am I the only person? No, who I didn't? definitely did. Yeah. I mean, I encountered him on the you know occasional channel flip, but I was never desperate enough to land, <laughs> land on it. <laughs> Oh, God, it was so mesmerizing. (laughs) So, yeah, so Bob Ross, for those who don't know, although apparently everyone in the world has some exposure to him prior to their adulthood except me, was this guy who hosted a show called The Joy of Painting on PBS and PBS-related public stations, I think, in the 80s and 90s. From I think it was from 1983 to 1994, something like that. And it was a half-hour format. He had this special technique, the wet-on-wet technique, where you would would put liquid kind of primer on on your canvas first. And then you just see him make an entire oil painting. Uh, which he's probably reproducing. Once you've been watching for a while, you can see that he glances off screen. I think it's a painting that he's already done that he's essentially copying or else he wouldn't be able to do it in half an hour. Um, but as he does it, he talks you through the technique and really makes you feel, even as you sit there with no brush in your hand, like you could make a beautiful landscape oil painting too. And the best thing about Bob Ross, I mean, the selling point is just Bob Ross's voice and personality, which is this wonderful, as Julia says, mesmerizing, soothing voice coming from this little man with a huge globular perm on top of his head. So let's just have some fun today. I'm going to start out with the old two-inch brush, and we'll go into the least little touch of the Indian yellow, just a small amount. And we'll go right up here, and let's just dance in a happy little sky today. Let's, and uh, let's the thing that's just been put on Netflix in its entirety is not actually the Joy of Painting that lasted for so many seasons. It's this one particular, I'm not quite clear if it's a season of Joy of Painting or a different show he did at the same time. It's called Beauty is Everywhere. And <laughs> the whole thing is on Netflix now. And it's become this family tradition now that if my daughter is good and gets her homework done and has everything in order a little bit before bedtime, that the three of us will sit down together and watch a Bob Ross episode. And it's such a pleasure, especially to watch it with two artists. <laughs> Like, I live with two people who make paintings and drawings and pastel things all the time. And so they just sit there in wonderment, like, how did he get that highlight on that tree? <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm just kind of spacing out to the, to the beauty of his voice. And a really nice thing in Beauty is Everywhere that I don't think happens in The Joy of Painting is, do you guys remember that Bob Ross has these little woodland animals that he adopts and that he occasionally cuts away? <laughs> so You guys, Dana's totally on mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Ross makes you feel like you're on mushrooms. It's he really crazy. does. So, so this particular season of Beauty is Everywhere, my daughter told me this, and I thought she was making it up because it was too adorable to, to be real. But she said, oh, have you seen any of the ones yet with Peapod the Pocket Squirrel? <laughs> so Peapod the Pocket Squirrel is this little baby squirrel that Bob Ross has somehow befriended enough that it will sit in his pocket. Not while he paints, but it's sort of a cutaway. And so as he's painting and adding the highlights to his pine trees, he'll say, let's, let's just visit my happy little friend Peapod. <laughs> and then you, you get to visit him playing. And there's one where Peapod falls asleep and he's playing with his little feet. And believe it or not, Bob Ross says, and just look at his little foots. <laughs> so hearing Bob Ross say foots while playing with the foots of a pocket squirrel, is it basically as good oh as television God. viewing gets? I, I, after 10 years of doing the show, I did not think Dana could get any more Dana. But this is as, this is as Dana... As Dana has ever been. I mean, this is the whole new frontier of Dana. All you need is nutmeg. Just grate some nutmeg on it. Zach, We're I done. hope that you put like a chime of gamelan behind this. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
riff. To go with the ketamine. No one can even hear you guys because they turned off the podcast and ran to their televisions <laughs> to go watch Peapod the Pocket Squirrel. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. If, if, I, if I ever started talking about Peapod the Pocket Squirrel, I'd walk out of here in cuffs. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Where do you go? I mean, doubling down on Bob Ross. <laughs> Julia, if if you could possibly recover for all of us, do you have an endorsement? I do. And I'm bummed because I'm really proud of and excited about my endorsement, but it's definitely going to pale in comparison to Dana's. Mine is the log roll to end all log rolls. <laughs> I want to endorse Slate.com, our mothership. Oh, the Slate site. Oh my god! Oh my god! That I, I didn't think Julia could get any more. Julia. It's a log roll. It's a Paul Bunyan sized log roll. <laughs> well, no, give me a minute here. So we talked about Dana's wonderful piece for our twentieth anniversary package, but I wanted to pause to shout out for our listeners, uh, our birthday, and a couple of the cool things that we're doing around it. You know, I think a lot of our listeners are Slate readers who became podcast listeners at some point, but a lot of our listeners are listeners who found us through the word of mouth slash word of ear of the podcast verse. Um, But Slate has been around for 20 years as of this past June. We're celebrating this month with a bunch of pieces about the next 20 years. So interesting things that happened on Slate's Watch, among them the release of Walking and Talking that might indicate something about where we're headed. We're also going to have in Slate Plus a whole bunch of uh, flashbacky, more navel-gazy, classic anniversary package type stuff about the dawn of Slade and where were we then and what kind of weird overalls we wore to the retreat in 1999 and whatever the hell sort of navel-gazy stuff we might do. But I wanted to shout out one thing, my favorite thing that we've made so far uh, with, with no uh, disrespect meant to Dana's wonderful essay, but the most improbable thing we've built for this commemoration of 20 years of Slate being Slate on the internet is an interactive, which allows you to see every single thing Slate has ever published on one screen. Sadly, only one desktop screen. We couldn't fit it all in one mobile screen. But essentially, we've built this histogram that shows how many things we published every year. Every single piece is represented by a single pixel, and you can mouse over the interactive and see the headlines of all those pieces. And so you can see kind of 20 years of the internet talking you can you can eavesdrop on 20 years of smart people on the internet talking and what was the sort of thing that even seemed like an interesting point to make in 1998 and what was the sort of thing that became a preoccupation in October 2001 and or some less charged month like I don't know April 2007 maybe maybe April 2007 was also charged I can't remember what happened in April 2007 but um I just you know one of the things about working on the internet and having worked at Slate for more than a decade and uh, you know, I've been here for 13 years now, is that it feels infinite. It feels like you're just pouring information it, it, into this infinite pool of slateness, which lives in the infinity of the internet. But it's actually finite. By the time that I wrote my intro, we'd published exactly 152,000 odd items, and we managed to capture them all on one page. And all the vicissitudes of the internet are there. Some of them are broken, and some of them seem out old-fashioned or outdated in various ways. And there's a lot of gems, a lot of gems from my my uh, interlocutors here. A lot of Metcalf gems there. A lot of Dana gems. Steve, you got a shout out in uh, Nathan Heller's piece yesterday. I'm not sure if you Did saw. I? Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I would encourage our listeners to go 
uh, eavesdrop on 20 years of smart people chatting on the internet and 20 years of Slate and encourage them to check out all the pieces that we're publishing. And yeah, I just feel so lucky to work at this place where uh, being smart and fun is what you're supposed to do all day. And uh, looking at 20 years of doing that has been pretty exciting as we've been putting this together. I have a question. Over how long a period are these things going to be rolling out? For the rest of September, Mm -hmm. next three weeks. So it's like a month-long birthday celebration. Yeah, basically. After 10 years of Julia Turner, I've learned something new about you this morning. What's that? You mispronounce finite. Finite. (laughs) You've done it twice in the show. That's true. She did it in the the Donald Glover segment, too. What the fuck is finite? (laughs) The opposite opposite of infinite. infinite. The opposite of infinite. (laughs) No, it's how you mispronounce (laughs) finite if you just lop off the I-N of infinite. Look, Slate's been uh, producing content for... uh, Oh, now I can't pronounce Pedans. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I was trying to name call Steve and I couldn't. Um, well, maybe that's the most Steve moment to take my mushy reminiscence and uh, sting it with a glancing arrow. But uh, yeah, finite, finite. Maybe, maybe we can agree to disagree, or am I just wrong? I don't know. We'll have to look that one up. I wonder if it's if it, if some bizarre medievalist somewhere. In the bowels of uh, a forgotten university pronounces it finite, in which case you're free to keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you. All right. All right. What's your endorsement, Steve? Uh, it's, 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 it's the easiest endorsement to fun I've probably ever given because the first is, um, you know, people ask me for these recommendations for the Hudson Valley and for the town of Hudson in particular. Um, I love Hudson. Hudson's a fun place to while away a weekend and and even move to and live. But um, there isn't a restaurant. Like, I, I find it's very hard for me to recommend a place to go to dinner that I really wholeheartedly love. Well, one has opened in Hudson. It's called Lil Deb's Oasis, L-I-L apostrophe, Lil Deb's Oasis. It's it's. I have to say it's a great restaurant. They describe it as tropical comfort food. It's kind of a Caribbean restaurant. It's great. It's just a great local joint of the kind you would think for all the hype Hudson would have had as recently as 12 years ago and they're finally getting it now but it's a totally a wholehearted recommendation it's a great place to spend I like that name that name is weird and the place is weird it's it's just kind of you know the 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 kind of bourgeoisification of urban America keeps pushing the frontier out and it's long since you know surpassed Bushwick and Crown Heights and on and on. And it's floated up the Hudson to Hudson, which is why the town is hyped. And it never gets the mix quite right. It never feels like it's balancing its newness against its bourgeoisness quite. It, it's always weird and off. Like people basically, what it comes down to is people throw too much money at something or too little creativity or both. And and it, it just, that's why I haven't been able to, you know, but anyway, this place gets it somehow exactly right. I really love it. Um, All right. Well, here now I'm going to open myself up to complete ridicule. But my other endorsement this week is kayaking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) She picks up. And not only is there a look of total disgust, she picks up her iPhone. You're not even going to fuck with me on it? You're just going to make me feel stupid? Just just finish saying it. Well, you know, so, so... Sometimes I will always wanted to be the kind of person with a boat on top of his car, but probably didn't want to actually, you know, throw my neck out getting it up there. And I finally am the person like I got the frickin rack. I got a pair of kayaks and it's, you know, it's mostly to motivate 
my older daughter, who's a screen rat, like all of her peers, to go out into nature with me and do something. And it turns out I've loved kayaking for a long time, but it's been completely seasonal. It was limited to the like couple of weeks I spend in Vermont every summer. Kayaking to me, it's the kind of thing that you, if you're like me and you're a book nerd, you know, a, a, a sunlight deprived book nerd, you think of kayaking as something someone else does. It's not, it's so contemplative. It's so beautiful. It's more like reading than it is like, you know, playing soccer, um, <laughs> whatever it is you, whatever it is you embodied people to. <laughs> anyway, I, I couldn't love kayaking more. I don't know. This is going nowhere. Julia, just at least no. make fun of me. I'm begging you. I just, I'm just trying to think like, which mode of boat is most like reading? <laughs> I like kayaking. That seems plausible. I don't love the like drip situation <laughs> as you've got like the double paddle, like both sides are getting this drip. Whereas like the forceful J stroke of sterning a canoe, you are totally in control of your dryness and wetness. I, I mean, with the, with the minimal amount of kind of foresight and effort, you don't end up dripped upon. I mean, the paddle is long. It's on either side of the boat. You're dipping it in. It drips back into the lake pretty infallibly. I don't know. I never figured out how to kayak then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, kayaking. Um, uh, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thanks a lot. Thank you. That was fun. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed, as always, is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Will, we'll see you soon. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world